Now we have Graham with us this morning. Graham is going to come and speak to us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's been a rather eventful this morning. So. Uh, yeah. It's been <laughs> interesting. It has been a rather interesting morning. Um, if you don't mind, I was going to pray for you. Before oh, you no, I don't mind at all. <laughs> okay. Father, we, we thank you for Graham. We thank you um, for his, his servant heart, for his... Um, yeah, for the word he's come with us, come with to speak to us this morning, Lord. Um, and you'd, we just pray that you'd open our hearts um, to your message this morning and the words that you've put on Graham's heart that, that would just really resonate with us this morning, Lord. Um, we pray a blessing over Graham um, as he speaks to us this morning. Amen. We've been going through the section in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament that tells us about the journey of the whole Israelite people as they got out of Egypt, they traveled a lot through the desert and then they were heading for a land which was promised to them and had been promised to them for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we sometimes call it the, the promised land, but there was a sense of promise. They held on to something that they trusted from God through all that time. And we've been following their journey to see if there are things we can learn we need to remember with the Old Testament that it's, um, it's not written to us. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. So we have to try and get our heads into the story a little bit. And we've got to a stage in the story which personally I think is the, I think it's, the, it's a turning point, not just a turning point in the story, but I think it's a turning point in the whole of the, the Old Testament narrative, really, because it's so extraordinary and so mind-blowing. And that's... And I've spent uh, a little while now thinking about it and looking at it, but when I've read it before, I just thought, this is crazy. How is it that we don't see this as being so significant? So I'll give you a little bit of the background just to try and put the picture into a context, and then uh, we'll look at what happened then, and we'll see if there's anything that we can learn from it for our own situation today. So Moses is the central character here. It's a meeting between him and God. Moses, for his whole life, has carried a dream of liberating his people from Egyptian rule. And he tried to go about it on his own once, but he really messed it up. Killed a guy, it was all in his own idea and his own strength and effort. And he had to run away from Egypt as a result. And he was away for decades. And in that time, there was a process going on between him and God when something was happening. And at the end of it, God called him back into the fight, but said, look, Moses, you are going to be responsible for leading these people out, but you're going to do it my way. Okay, let's just establish that. He then went back to Egypt, went back to his people, told them God was going to lead them out. They had a whole series of really dramatic events that proved to them that God was for them still, proved to the Egyptians that they weren't bigger than God, that God could take them out effectively. They, uh, they escaped through a, a miraculous passage through the, um, the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, depending on how we understand it. It was just a lot of water. It was enough water to drown the Egyptian army. They got out from that and then they started to encounter God in a really different way, a way that God's people had not encountered him for hundreds and hundreds of years. If you read back in the story and you go back into Genesis, you'll see that individuals, Abraham and 
Jacob and Joseph and others, they had encounters with God, but never a whole people. And that's what was happening here. The whole people were beginning to build an understanding that they were a people. Eventually, God invites the leaders of these people. And this in itself is extraordinary. God invites 70 of the leaders and Moses and Aaron to a meal, a special meal halfway up the mountain or maybe at the top of the mountain, quite high up anyway. And there, there are 70 plus of them who encounter God in a physical way. It's, it's the most extraordinary thing because God's always saying, well, you you can't meet me in this way. And yet he lets them meet him in that way. Shortly after that, however, because they get tired of waiting for Moses to come back down from his own personal encounter where God is giving him instructions, the same, the very same people who've encountered God in that way, they persuade Aaron to make a different image of God for them. It turns out to be a golden calf. And uh, the people start to worship this golden calf. Moses comes down. He really loses his rag with, with Aaron. Aaron lies to try and get out of the, the situation, but that doesn't work. Moses uh, throws the, the, the tablets, these special instructions that God has given. He throws them onto the ground. It smashes. And so we have to go through a process which um, in modern terms we might call Ten Commandments 2.0. Moses has to go back up to meet with God again. Shortly before that, um, it's unclear whether it was the day before, but it was certainly uh, not long before. Moses is having a conversation with God. Now it describes, the Old Testament describes the conversations that Moses has with God as a man speaking to his friend. And the, the language that it was originally written in it doesn't have a word for presence so when it talks about God's presence it means God face to face with with Moses even though um, that's a really difficult thing to to imagine and actually God said to Moses look you're not gonna be able to see me really face to face but that's how intimate their conversation was and even though that was going on Moses did still did not know the name of God he knew who God was, he'd had encounters with God, the whole people had had encounters with God, but God was nameless to them. And he had said, look, I can't cope with these people. I'll send you into the promised land, I'll send an angel with you, everything's going to work out well. Moses said, no, you've got to go with us. Unless you come, it's just not worth us going. God said, okay, um, come up the mountain again, I'll give you the same instructions again but you will also encounter me in a different way and I will tell you my name. And that's the background. That's where we pick the story up. Now, this is Exodus 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write on them the same words that were on the tablets you smashed. I like that. Not the tablets that got broken, the, the tablets that you smashed, Moses. Uh, Be ready in the morning to climb up Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on top of the mountain. Mount Sinai was probably about twice the height of Mount Snowden. So it's a reasonable walk for this old guy who's around 80 now, remember. Um, so Moses chiseled out the, the tablets and in the morning he climbed Mount Sinai. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and he stood there with him. So this is God who is 
distant from them, God who comes down on the mountain in cloud and lightning and he, there's thunder and the mountain shakes and everybody's afraid. And God comes down in a form that he can stand with Moses. And then he walks. It, it, uh, well, let me read what it says. In a cloud, he stood there with him and he called out his own name. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out. Now, what I'm about to read is the the name that God spoke. And this section of scripture, these two verses are quoted more often in the rest of the Bible than any other part of the Old Testament. It's so central to the way the people of the Old Testament thought about God that they quoted it, they went back to it over and over and over again. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger. I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. An entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Now, this was just extraordinary in a number of ways. It was extraordinary for a God to reveal himself in this kind of way. No other comparable, well, there aren't any comparable gods, but no other gods of the time did this sort of thing. This was just not godlike. The fact that God would do this and, and bring himself down to be like a man and present himself and his name in this way. And he says, I am so full of love. It will go on for a thousand generations. But I, I can't just ignore sin. I can't just ignore the things that are, that are wrong and are against me. I'm, I'm going to have to do something about that. That's essentially what he's saying here. And that is his name. That's not just a statement of intent. That's who he is. And that's how he reveals himself to Moses. Now remember this is before all of the sacrificial system, it's before the tabernacle, before the, the temples, it's before the Holy Spirit is sent and given, before Jesus. And yet Moses has this incredible encounter with who God is and how he reveals himself. Moses' immediate response is this, verse 8, Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and he worshipped. He didn't start arguing with, with God about it. He didn't say, oh, that's really interesting, God, or, or what, what's all this stuff about the third and fourth generation? I don't really get that. I thought you were full of compassion and everything. Just the, the sense of being that close to this person, the God full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger. And uh, let's face it, the Israelites gave him plenty of opportunity to get angry. And Moses' response is to, to worship him. He then goes on to say, Lord, if it's true that I found favor, favor with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people, but please forgive our iniquity and our sins. Cause us as your, uh, sorry, claim us as your own special possession. And Again, this is Moses speaking to God in a way that you would just think, how, how does he have the, the courage 
to ask God for something that significant and that deep. The Lord replied, listen, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that have never been performed before anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. Now, if he's going to do things that nobody's seen yet, they've, uh, they've had 10 plagues, they've been through the, the Red Sea, they've had manna and quail, they've had water from a rock to uh, all of that uh, water and food to feed maybe 3 million people. Those are pretty extraordinary. And God here is saying, yeah, but you've not seen anything yet. Uh, and I'm making a covenant, an agreement, a binding promise with you that all the other nations will see the, the, the depth of the relationship that I will have with you. And ultimately, everybody is invited into that. There's an opportunity for everybody to come in and to know Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. So this encounter, it's pivotal because it's the first time in the Old Testament, and we've already had quite a lot going on with all of Genesis and Exodus up till now. It's the first time anybody knows who, who God is. Until then, he's just God. It's just, oh, okay, you're God, fine. And they see his attributes, they see his character and the things that he does. But here, God reveals himself and tells them his name in a way which is really very intimate and in the middle of these kind of huge events that are going on, here's a relationship, one to one, one person, one God, and God is revealing himself to Moses. The fact that we can read about it now is because it's recorded for us. So it's significant for us as well. One thing to go on to notice about Moses. Moses goes back down to the, the people and there's all kinds of interactions go on. You'll have to read that yourself. Oh, just, we're not having any questions at the end of this, by the way, but the homework really is just go away and read this yourselves and have a think about it. Don't just think, oh yeah, that was okay. Graham went on a bit too long, but yeah, I get the point. It's sort of interesting. It's not interesting. It's pivotal. <laughs> if we get hold of this in a different way, in a fresh way, it will bring change into our lives. Anyway, back to Moses. Uh, Moses is uh, going back down and from then on he continues to meet with God, except there's a difference. He's had such an encounter with God that there is there's something of God's glory that is reflected in Moses and he, has, he starts to have to wear a veil across his face because people can't cope with the reflected glory that they're seeing in Moses' face and this continues for some time and every time Moses goes into the tent that's set aside where he meets God um, he takes the veil away so that he is there is no barrier between him and God and then he puts the veil back over his face when he goes outside. What's the point? The point is this, this encounter that Moses had changed him. Even though he already had, excuse me, I'm going to cough. <coughs> Even though he already had this incredible relationship with God, it changed it even more. 
And I think here's the question for us. How do our encounters change us? How do our encounters with God change us? Do we still expect them? Have we ever expected them? Uh, I knew a man once who'd had this type of encounter with God. Uh, I didn't know him really well, but I knew him reasonably well. And uh, he, I was in a small group once, and he was telling us about an encounter where he'd, he'd met God so intimately. And afterwards, uh, in the, uh, the dining room in the conference centre he was in, nobody came and sat with him. And he asked afterwards, uh, some time afterwards, why nobody came and sat with him. And they said, it's because we didn't dare be near you. We could see there was something about you, that you'd had this encounter with, with God. It changed him, and it changed his life, and it changed the way that he saw God, it changed the way he, he presented God, it changed the way he loved people, it changed the way he prayed and he worshipped and he lived. And for Moses, it was in the context of a significant change going on. Moses knew they were going somewhere, but he didn't know where. And he had all kinds of things going on that he had to cope with, and God met him in the middle of that. And what I want to know for me and for all of us is do we have the expectation of meeting with God in deeper and deeper ways? Or are we, are we okay with what we've got? Are we satisfied with where we are? Just think, yeah, I, I know God reasonably well. I've, you know, I've got all my, my stars as a Christian and I've done this and I've done that and I've, I've done the other. You know, some of you have known him for a long, long, long time. Do you still expect to know him better? Some of you hardly known God for any time at all, but you can always know him better. One of the, the things I have to de defend about myself sometimes, people, um, I was once accused of giving people too much hope. Somebody said, I think you give people too much hope. And I just thought, how, how can you give people too much hope? How can you raise people's expectations of God too high? Because anything that I can imagine, God can surpass. And anything that you can imagine, God can surpass. So the story of Moses is there. Uh, we can learn from that. And uh, we've got a couple more of these to go before we finish the, the series. Uh, and then we get to Easter, and Easter is about as brilliant and as exciting as it gets.